Welcome to His Life Revealed with Pastor Todd Granger of His Life Fellowship in San Antonio, Texas. We're glad you've chosen to join us today. Our passion at His Life Ministries is to help believers know Him and show Him. So we keep it simple. It's just about Jesus. Our prayer is that the Holy Spirit will make His truth plain to you so you can walk in freedom and enjoy the life of union that God has designed for you to live. And now, here's Pastor Todd. This week we are going back to 2 Corinthians, and tonight I'm going to back us up into chapter 1. We, uh, we're going to talk about verses 23 and 24, and then we're going to go to chapter 2 and work our way from 1 to 11. And that seems like a lot of territory to cover, but in reality it all flows together. And I would remind you that while the Scripture is God-breathed, the divisions, chapter and verse, are not. So sometimes you get it chopped up when you shouldn't. Before we begin, I want to remind you of some of the history, because if your memories, hopefully, are better than mine, you may not have even remembered we were in Corinthians. Paul had been deeply grieved by the problems in the church in Corinth, the church that he founded. And there was a great deal of carnality. There were divisions, and some were even being led to deny the apostolic authority of Paul. And we covered these issues in 1 Corinthians, and we covered everything from gross immorality to a perversion of the Lord's table. And then at some point, Paul made a rather quick trip to Corinth to deal with the issues. But we have no record of that trip except that he references it in chapter 13 and 14. And apparently that trip was so grievous that he made a rather quick exit. He was confronted with some false teachers that had come into the church and incited a mutiny against him. And one of the converts of these false teachers, a very outspoken individual, led a rebellion within the church against Paul, actually confronted Paul And he accused Paul of being out for money, of being deceptive. He confronted him. He attacked his character. He attacked his ministry. And Paul was left grieved and overwhelmed with sorrow on the behalf of the people in Corinth. So he writes this severe letter. We talked about that, which Titus delivers. And Paul urges the church to discipline this person in order to save their unity. Then Paul, who had been concerned about over-grieving the church by virtue of this letter, the severity of that letter, runs out to find Titus on Titus's return trip from Corinth to find out what their reaction to the letter was. And to Paul's great joy, he learns that the letter was well-received and they had repented and, in fact, had disciplined the brother or the offender. And that brings us to the close of chapter 1. But I want to back us up to verse 21 so that you can see the flow of the letter. So look on with me at chapter 1, and we'll begin with verses 21 and 22. Verse 21 says, But it is God who confirms and makes us steadfast and establish us in joint fellowship with you in Christ, and has consecrated and anointed us in doing us with the gifts of the Holy Spirit. He has also appropriated and acknowledged us as his 
as his by putting his seal upon us and giving us his Holy Spirit in our hearts as the security deposit and guarantee of our fulfillment. Well, who confirms us? Who makes us steadfast and establishes us in Christ? Is it our determination? Is it our faithfulness? You know, is it our behavior? No. Paul makes it clear that it is God who makes us who we are. We are what we are because God declares it so. God declares what is true concerning us. No word, no failure, no accusation changes that. We are his alone. Now, we have his anointing and his seal, and his spirit is our source and substance of the union life. And Paul reminds us that in Christ, by virtue of the work of God and no other reason, we can never be moved. We can never be moved. Look at verse 23 and 24. But I call upon God as my soul's witness. It was to avoid hurting you that I refrained from coming to Corinth. Verse 24, not that we have dominion over you and lord it over your faith, but rather that we work with you as fellow laborers to promote your joy. For in your faith, in your strong and welcome conviction or belief that Jesus is the Messiah through whom we obtain eternal salvation in the kingdom of God, you stand firm. Now, Paul explains why he didn't return to Corinth, but rather sent a letter via Titus. Why? Well, some of your translations will say to spare you. Well, to spare them what? Many of you out there have children. I know I can hear them. So you will understand that sometimes you have to separate yourself from the offense or the offender in order to be balanced in your response. And all the mothers said, amen. Yes, that's right. A flesh interpretation would be to step aside to gather your wits. A better approach would be to embrace the balance and truth of the spirit in your soul. As I've said before, I have learned that in the moment, I don't always know how to respond. Even though I may respond, doesn't mean that I know how to respond. The enemy pushes us to respond quickly, and it's usually to protect ourselves or to establish ourselves over others. Now, here's the truth of it. We have to deny ourselves. We have to deny the truth to do that. We have to deny the truth to do that. We are held by him. We are established by him. To respond in self-protection is to deny the truth. Paul wants them to know in verse 24 that he was not writing this to try to defensively establish himself over them. He's basically saying that we stand on level ground in Christ. We may have different roles, but we are co-laborers. And our point of faith and union is Christ. We all belong to the kingdom of God. Chapter 2, verse 1. But I definitely made up my mind not to grieve you with another painful and distressing visit. For if I cause you pain with merited rebuke, who is there to provide me enjoyment but the very one whom I have grieved and made sad. Verse 3, And I wrote the same to you, so that when I came, I might not be myself pained by those who are the very ones who ought to make me glad. For I trusted in you all, 
and felt confident that my joy would be shared by all of you. Now, Paul knew that to come to them in person while they were unwilling to receive the truth would put him in a position to be rejected and to respond with a painful rebuke. This would put the people in the position to choose between the dissenter and Paul. By appearing in person, it would reduce this argument to personalities rather than allowing it to be between truth and deception. In addition to the fact that because his last visit was very grievous, he wanted to minister to them joy. He wanted to minister them the glory of knowing Christ. He, you know, for all we know about Paul, he, he would be confrontational when he had to be. But it wasn't anything he delighted in. And this is the truth of our Savior as well. You read in the Gospels of how Jesus conducted himself. He didn't take on every wrong. In fact, he took on only one specifically, and that was the issue of sin and hypocrisy. The reality of it is that Jesus didn't act in a confrontational manner. What was confrontational about Jesus was who he was. And we'll find that is true for us as well. As we go out into the world and we, we allow that life to be presented before us, we'll find confrontation. And it won't even be about what we've said. It won't be about something we've done. It'll simply be about whose we are, the life that is in us. We can expect that to happen. Jesus said, it happened to me, it's going to happen to you. Paul had written to them in the hopes of their repentance and restoration, and he wanted to restore the relationship. And here's the thing, you see, he was confident that they would repent. Verse 4, he says, For I wrote to you out of great sorrow and deep distress with mental torture and anxiety of heart, yes, and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but in order to make you realize the overflowing love that I continue increasingly to have for you. Obviously, that love is what he's talking about there is in present tense imperative. It's ongoing. It is never stopping. It is growing. And Paul wants them to see that the severe letter that he wrote them was literally written with a grieved heart, but it was authored by love to restore them. It was not out of anger. It was not out of vengeance. It was not to try to set them straight. This is a good practice. If you have a way of doing this, to go, every time you see that word love, no matter how it's used, go back and look at the actual language and see what he's talking about. But if you read that verse and you see it where it says that to make you realize the overflowing love that I continue increasingly to have for you, you know what love he's talking about? Agape love. It's Christ's love. It's unconditional love. He says, I want you to understand that the love I have for you is God's love. The love referenced is agape. It's God's unconditional love. God's love for them, even in their carnal condition, even when they were in rebellion, God's love for them. This is the Holy Spirit writing through Paul. It is overflowing and it is continuing to increase. There's a verse in Proverbs that kind of speaks to Paul's letter, that severe letter. It says in Proverbs 27, verse 6, Faithful are the wounds of a friend who corrects out of love and concern. But the kisses of an enemy are deceitful because they serve his hidden agenda. And what you see here is the love of a friend. 
not just the love of a friend, but a love, the love of Christ himself for these people. Now we're going to look at verses 5 through 11. And in those verses, you will see that we're talking about forgiveness. You're seeing that in the verses that we just looked at, and in verses 5 through 11, it's not about Paul's suffering, but it's about them seeing how great the Father's love is and his heart for us, even while we're in rebellion. These verses are largely about forgiveness, which is something our society knows very little about. As one teacher put it, our society does not see forgiveness as a virtue, not even as a necessity, but as a demonstration of weakness. We live in a society that is on the road to self-destruction, not just the American culture, but the world, because we have an utter and complete disregard for forgiveness. We exalt vengeance and retaliation. Consequently, people are filled with bitterness, anger, hate, and vengeance. This world and those who are in the business of shaping thought and attitudes work tirelessly to divide and destroy unity. Now, here's something I want you to understand about forgiveness. This is very important because if you misunderstand this point, you will never, ever believe that you have forgiven. You will never, ever believe that you can forgive. I want you to understand that forgiveness is not a natural act. It is a supernatural act. And only the supernatural have the capacity to truly forgive. Now, that doesn't let you off because guess what? Guess who you are in Christ. Guess what you are in Christ. Are you natural or supernatural? You are supernatural. The new creation is a supernatural being. Only the supernatural can truly forgive. The world uses the word with various meanings and exceptions. Only in Christ do we say forgiveness is not an option. It is an imperative. As a new creation, I've been made in the image of God with the character of my God. And he defines forgiveness for me. Forgiveness is the response of agape love to any perceived wrong or offense. Forgiveness is the response of agape love to any perceived wrong or offense. We forgive because of who we are, not just to demonstrate who we are. Do you understand that? Most people will willingly embrace the idea that we were created in the image of God, and therefore, because God is love, we have the capacity to love. We get a little fuzzy around the idea of loving an enemy, though, because we want to define love and forgiveness by virtue of our emotions and their context. But the reality of it is that love and forgiveness are not defined by us. They're defined by God himself, by Christ. It is the one act that we do. It is one act that we do that, that puts us literally operating in his image. We are exerting the very life and character of God when we forgive. And nothing less is forgiveness. So there is no offense. There is no wrong that can come against the Christian that cannot be forgiven. That's a little hard, isn't it? But I want to tell you something. There is no offense. There is no wrong that your father has not forgiven in you. Let's look at verses 5 through 11. But if someone has caused all this sorrow, he has caused it not to me, but in some degree, not to put it too severely, he has distressed and grieved all of you. 
Now, one version of the Amplified has made reference to the one who committed incest, but it is not even implied in the original language because, frankly, they've taken it out of context. Paul is referencing the deceived brother who slandered him. That's what he's referencing. This is about the unity of the body. We never suffer alone. Injury is somehow felt by the whole. And Paul is not allowing himself to be seen as a martyr, and that's an important point. He will not allow himself to be seen as a martyr. He wants them to understand that what was injured was not Paul, but the body of Christ. That's what he wants them to see. A lot of people won't forgive because they don't want to let go of their right to be a victim. Have you noticed that? I see it all the time in counseling. They can't forgive because they'd lose their identity. Their identity is how they've been abused or misused or how they've been betrayed. And it gives them a sense of superiority over the other person, which they have decided that they do not like or cannot love, or you put fill in the blank. All they're doing is holding on to an image, an idol, a false idea. They have bought a satanic lie. It is wrong. Verse 6, for such a one, this censure by the majority which he has received is sufficient punishment. So instead of further rebuke now, you should rather turn and graciously forgive and comfort and encourage him to keep him from being overwhelmed by excessive sorrow and despair. Paul is urging forgiveness of the brother that slandered him and sought to destroy his influence in the church. In the previous verses, if you go back, this is why I read those verses. In the previous verses, Paul establishes that we are all in Christ, never to be removed. He writes about our equality in Christ as co-laborers. And then he says, it is the body that is suffered, not him alone. Do you see what he's doing? In every one of those verses, he is setting his brother up for forgiveness. He's saying, this man is no different. He is a brother in Christ. He is, he is in Christ. He stands on level ground with those who may not have offended Well, that's hard. But look at who's saying this. The one he came against. And here's the interesting thing about Paul. Paul didn't take it personally. You know why Paul didn't take it personally? Because Paul's identity wasn't in any of the things the man accused him of not having. The reason we get offended is because somebody touches the image for us. Paul is urging forgiveness. And apparently the offending brother had repented. And Paul is not calling out for vengeance and retribution. He's urging restoration. No further rebuke is necessary. Repentance is enough. Let us comfort and encourage him in the Lord. Why? To keep him from being overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. For the wrongly and unjustly abused, there is the grace to love and forgive. We forgive and love not because there is repentance. Get this. We forgive and love not because there is repentance, but because that is part of our new nature. You get it? It is never dependent upon the offender. We cannot say, I will forgive them when they have repaid me, when they have apologized, when they have repented. Forgiveness is not dependent upon the offender. It is dependent upon your yielding to the truth. That is the truth. We forgive and love because of our new nature. Now listen, there's a difference though. We comfort, restore, and encourage 
in response to repentance. You see the difference? We comfort, restore, and encourage in response to repentance. Now, this is a picture of the father's love. It's like the story in Luke 15 of the prodigal son. You all know the story. And the son returns home, and the father sees him coming from a long way off, and he runs to him. He runs to restore him. The son, who'd been in a pig pen, lusting after the pig's food, he thinks, you know, at least I can get a good bite of food and a place to lay my head at home. So the son comes hoping for just a bite of food and the status of what amounts to a migrant worker. But the father clothes him in his best robe and puts on his finger the ring of an heir. I want you to remember, our father is in a hurry to restore and restore completely. I'm not talking about on this earth, folks. I'm talking about restoring you to the truth of all that he has given you in Christ. Is there any greater reward than Christ himself? Is there more abundance than the presence, the person, the gift of his life in you? The Father is rushing to restore you to embrace all that you have. It is only in this world that we become so deceived that we do not know how rich we are. We do not see the blessing of it. And this is what sin does. This is what rebellion does. This is what bitterness and anger and selfishness does. It takes our eyes off the truth of what Christ has created us to be. It literally separates our minds, our souls, from the truth of the abundance that he has given us. It allows us to to chain ourselves to the fleshly appetites of this world and to see the blessings in in this world and in this temporal life and not see them in Christ. It is a mirage to a man dying of thirst. Verse 8, Paul's very passionate about this, but I want you to understand that this is not Paul's passion. This is the Father's passion. I therefore beg you to reinstate him in your affections and assure him of your love for him. I want you to see him the way God sees him. That word, the original language uses, means to affirm him in your love for him. Now, this is interesting. Because the love they had for him never ceased in that verse. Why? Because, again, it is agape love. It is the unending and unconditional love of God. He says, affirm your agape love for him. That is, speak, to, speak the truth so that the enemy's lie has no place in you or in your brother. Verse 9. For this was my purpose in writing you, to test your attitude and see if you would stand the test, whether you are obedient and altogether agreeable to, the fo- to following my orders in everything. See, Paul's desire for them was that they would be provoked to faith, that they would embrace the truth and reject the lie, that they prove for themselves that they have a heart of obedience. And that's what obedience does for us. That's what obedience does for us. It affirms the truth within us. It is not, it is not a burden. It is a blessing. It is the revelation of the Christ within you. And notice what, that Paul is urging forgiveness. And he says, this is part of the whole of his teaching. That whether you would follow the full instruction of my teaching in this forgiveness. He's saying forgiveness is not just a a segment out here. It's part of the whole. Why is it part of the whole? Why isn't it just a section? Why, why is it 
the whole of his teaching that he encompasses. I'll tell you why. Because it's all tied to identity. It is all tied to identity. Paul's instructions are simply this, to live out of your new nature. It's a part of the whole. It's who you are. Verse 10 and 11. If you forgive anything, I too forgive that one. And what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sakes in the presence and with the approval of Christ the Messiah, to keep Satan from getting the advantage over us. For we are not ignorant of his wiles and intentions. Paul forgave and would not be the reason that others might withhold their forgiveness. Again, Paul points to the unity of the body under the head that is Christ. And Paul forgives in obedience and for the sake of all. Do you know bitterness and resentment has an effect much like an infection in the body? Satan is behind the work of bitterness and hatred in the soul of the believer. If you won't forgive as a child of God, it is not because you can't. It is because you won't. Thank you for joining us for His Life Revealed with Pastor Todd Granger. This program is the radio ministry of His Life Fellowship in San Antonio, Texas. If you'd like to know more about us, visit us on the web at hislifeministries.org or on Facebook at His Life Fellowship. We would love to have you join us for worship. We meet on Saturdays at 5 p.m. at 1307 Blanco Woods at the corner of Blanco Road and Blanco Woods just inside Loop 1604. Also, if you would like to help support this ministry, you can send your tax-deductible donation to His Life Ministries, P.O. Box 1894, Bernie, Texas, 78006.